Section 12 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martina Hutchins. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford. Part 3, Chapter 3 And then Lenora completely broke down. On the day that they return to Branshaw Tellera, it is the infliction of our miserable minds. It is the scourge of atrocious but probably just destiny that no grief comes by itself. No, any great grief, though the grief itself may have gone, leaves in its place a train of horrors, of misery and despair. For Lenora was, in herself, relieved. She felt that she could trust Edward with the girl, and she knew that Nancy could be absolutely trusted. And then, with the slackening of her vigilance, came the slackening of her entire mind. This is perhaps the most miserable part of the entire story, for it is miserable to see a clean intelligence waver. And Lenora wavered. You are to understand that Leonora loved Edward with a passion that was yet like an agony of hatred, and she had lived with him for years and years without addressing to him one word of tenderness. I don't know how she could do it. At the beginning of that relationship, she had been just married off to him. She had been one of seven daughters in a bare, untidy Irish manor house to which she had returned from the convent I have so often spoken of. She had left it just a year, and she was just nineteen. It is impossible to imagine such inexperience as was hers. You might almost say that she had never spoken to a man except a priest. Coming straight from the convent, she had gone in behind the high walls of the manor-house that was almost more cloistral than any convent could have been. There were the seven girls, there was the strained mother, there was the worried father at whom, three times in the course of that year, the tenants took pot-shots from behind a hedge. The women-folk, upon the whole, the tenants respected. Once a week, each of the girls, since there were seven of them, took a drive with the mother in the old basket-work chase drawn by a very fat, very lumbering pony. They paid occasionally a call, but even these were so rare that Lenora has assured me only three times in the year that succeeded her coming home from the convent did she enter another person's house. For the rest of the time... The seven sisters ran about in the neglected gardens between the unpruned espaliers, or they played lawn tennis or fives in an angle of a great wall that surrounded the garden, an angle from which the fruit trees had long died away. They painted in watercolor, they embroidered, they copied verses into albums. Once a week they went to Mass, once a week to the confessional, accompanied by an old nurse. They were happy, since they had known no other life. 
it appeared to them a singular extravagance when one day a photographer was brought over from the country town and photographed them standing all seven in the shadow of an old apple tree with the gray lichen on the rattled trunk but it wasn't an extravagance three weeks before colonel powis had returned to colonel ashburnham i say harry couldn't your edward marry one of my girls it would be a godsend to me for i'm at the end of my tether and once one girl begins to go off the rest of them will follow he went on to say that all his daughters were tall upstanding clean-limbed and absolutely pure and he reminded colonel ashburnham that they having been married on the same day though in different churches since the one was catholic and the other an anglican they had said to each other the night before that when the time came one of their sons should marry one of their daughters mrs ashburnham had been a poet and remained mrs poet's dearest friend they had drifted about the world as english soldiers do seldom meeting but their women always in correspondence one with another they wrote about minute things such as the teething of edward and of the earlier daughters or the best way to repair jacob's ladder in a stocking and if they met seldom yet it was often enough to keep each other's personalities fresh in their minds gradually growing a little stiff in the joints but always with enough to talk about and with a store of reminiscences then as his girls began to come of age when they must leave the convent in which they were regularly interned during his years of active service colonel powis retired from the army with the necessity of taking a home for them it happened that the ashburnhams had never seen any of the powis girls though whenever the four parents met in london edward ashburnham was always of the party he was at that time twenty-two and i believe almost as pure in mind as lenora herself it is odd how a boy can have his virgin intelligence untouched in this world that was partly due to the careful handling of his mother partly to the fact that the house to which he went at winchester had a particularly pure tone and partly to edward's own peculiar aversion from anything like coarse language or gross stories at sandhurst he had just kept out of the way of that sort of thing he was keen on soldiering keen on mathematics on land surveying on politics and by a queer warp of his mind on literature even when he was twenty-two he would pass hours reading one of scott's novels or the chronicles of Fossat. mrs ashburnham considered that she was to be congratulated and almost every week she wrote to mrs powis dilating upon her satisfaction then one day taking a walk down bond street with her son after having been at lord's she noticed edward suddenly turn his head round to take a second look at a well-dressed girl who had passed them she wrote about that too to mrs powis and expressed some alarm it had been on edward's part the merest reflex action he was so very abstracted at the time owing to the pressure his crammer was putting upon him that he certainly hadn't known what he was doing it was this letter of mrs ashburnham's to mrs powis 
that had caused the letter from Colonel Powis to Colonel Ashburnham, a letter that was half humorous, half longing. Mrs. Ashburnham caused her husband to reply with a letter a little more jocular, something to the effect that Colonel Powis ought to give them some idea of the goods that he was marketing. That was the cause of the photograph. I have seen it. The seven girls, all in white dresses, all very much alike in feature, all except Lenora, a little heavy about the chins and a little stupid about the eyes. I dare say it would have made Lenora, too, look a little heavy and a little stupid, for it was not a good photograph. But the black shadow from one of the branches of the apple tree cut right across her face, which is all but invisible. There followed an extremely harassing time for Colonel and Mrs. Powis. Mrs. Ashburnham had written to say that, quite sincerely, nothing would give greater ease to her maternal anxieties than to have her son marry one of Mrs. Powis's daughters, if only he showed some inclination to do so. For, she added, nothing but a love match was to be thought of in Edward's case. But the poor poet's couple had to run things so very fine that even the bringing together of the young couple was a desperate hazard. The mere expenditure upon sending one of the girls over from Ireland to Branshaw was terrifying to them, and whichever girl they selected might not be the one to ring Edward's bell. On the other hand, the expenditure upon mere food and extra sheets for a visit from the Ashburnhams to them was terrifying too. It would mean, mathematically, going short in so many meals themselves afterwards. Nevertheless, they chanced it, and all the three Ashburnhams came to visit to the lonely manor house. They could give Edward some rough shooting, some rough fishing, and a whirl of femininity. But I should say the girls made really more impression upon Mrs. Ashburnham than upon Edward himself. They appeared to her to be so clean-run and so safe. They were indeed so clean-run that, in a faint sort of way, Edward seems to have regarded them rather as boys than as girls. And then, one evening, Mrs. Ashburnham had with her boy one of those conversations that English mothers have with English sons. It seems to have been a criminal sort of proceeding, though I don't know what took place at it. Anyhow, next morning, Colonel Ashburnham asked on behalf of his son for the hand of Leonora. This caused some consternation to the poet's couple, since Leonora was the third daughter and Edward ought to be married to the eldest. Mrs. Powis, with her rigid sense of proprieties, almost wished to reject the proposal. But the colonel, her husband, pointed out that the visit would cost them sixty pounds, what with the hire of an extra servant, of a horse and car, and of the purchase of beds and bedding and extra tablecloths. There was nothing else for it but the marriage. In that way, Edward and Leonora became man and wife. I don't know that a very minute study of their progress towards complete disunion is necessary. Perhaps it is. But there are many things that I cannot well make out, about which I cannot well question Leonora, or about which Edward did not tell me. I do not know that there was ever any question of love from Edward to her. He regarded her, certainly, as desirable among her sisters. 
He was obstinate to the extent of saying that if he could not have her, he would not have any of them, and no doubt, before the marriage, he had made her pretty speeches out of books that he had read. But, as far as he could describe his feelings at all, later, it seems that, calmly and without quickening of the pulse, he just carried the girl off, there being no opposition. It had, however, been all so long ago that it seemed to him, at the end of his poor life, a dim and misty affair. He had the greatest admiration for Leonora. He had the very greatest admiration. He admired her for her truthfulness, for her cleanliness of mind, and the clean runness of her limbs, for her efficiency, for the fairness of her skin, for the gold of her hair, for her religion, for her sense of duty. It was a satisfaction to take her about with him. But she had not for him a touch of magnetism. I suppose, really, he did not love her because she was never mournful. What really made him feel good in life was to comfort somebody who would be darkly and mysteriously mournful. That he had never had to do for Lenora. Perhaps, also, she was at first too obedient. I do not mean to say that she was submissive, that she deferred in her judgments to his. She did not. But she had been handed over to him like some patient medieval virgin. She had been taught all her life that the first duty of a woman is to obey. And there she was. In her, at least, admiration for his qualities very soon became love of the deepest description. If his pulses never quickened, she, so I have been told, became what is called an altered being when he approached her from the other side of the dance floor. Her eyes followed him about, full of trustfulness, of admiration, of gratitude, and of love. He was also, in a great sense, her pastor and guide. He guided her into what, for a girl straight out of a convent, was almost heaven. I have not the least idea of what an English officer's wife's existence may be like. At any rate, there were feasts and chatterings, and nice men who gave her the right sort of admiration, and nice women who treated her as if she had been a baby. And her confessor approved of her life, and Edward let her give little treats to the girls of the convent she had left, and the Reverend Mother approved of him. There could not have been a happier girl for five or six years for it was only at the end of that time that the clouds began, as the saying is, to arise. She was then about twenty-three, and her purposeful efficiency made her perhaps have a desire for mastery. She began to perceive that Edward was extravagant in his larguses. His parents died just about that time, and Edward, though they had both decided that he should continue his soldiering, gave a great deal of attention to the management of Branshaw through a steward. Aldershot was not very far away, and they spent all his leaves there. And suddenly she seemed to begin to perceive that his generosities were almost fantastic. He subscribed much too much to things connected with his mess. He pensioned off his father's servants, old or new, much too generously. They had a large income, but every now and then they would find themselves hard up. He began to talk of mortgaging a farm or two, though it never actually came to that. She made tentative efforts at remonstrating with him. Her father, 
whom she saw now and then, said that Edward was much too generous to his tenants. The wives of his brother officers remonstrated with their, her in private. His large subscriptions made it difficult for their husbands to keep up with them. Ironically enough, the first real trouble between them came from his desire to build a Roman Catholic chapel in Branshaw. He wanted to do it in honor of Leonora, and he proposed to do it very expensively. Leonora did not want it. She could perfectly well drive from Branshaw to the nearest Catholic church as often as she liked. There were no Roman Catholic tenants and no Roman Catholic servants except her old nurse, who could always drive with her. She had as many priests to stay with her as she could need, and even the priests did not want a gorgeous chapel in that place where it would have been merely seen as an invidious instance of ostentation. They were perfectly ready to celebrate Mass for Leonora and her nurse when they stayed at Branshaw in a cleaned-up outhouse. But Edward was as obstinate as a hog about it. He was truly grieved at his wife's want of sentiment, at her refusal to receive that amount of public homage from him. She appeared to him to be wanting in imagination, to be cold and hard. I don't exactly know what part her priests played in the tragedy that it all became. I dare say they behaved quite creditably, but mistakenly. But then, who would not have been mistaken with Edward? I believe he was even hurt that Lenora's confessor did not make strenuous efforts to convert him. There was a period when he was quite ready to become an emotional Catholic. I don't know why they did not take him out on the hop, but they have queer sorts of wisdoms, those people, and queer sorts of tact. Perhaps they thought that Edward's too early conversion would frighten off other Protestant desirables from marrying Catholic girls. Perhaps they saw deeper into Edward than he saw himself, and thought that he would make not a very creditable convert. At any rate, they, and Lenora, left him very much alone. It mortified him very considerably. He has told me that if Leonora had taken his aspirations seriously, everything would have been different. But I dare say that was nonsense. At any rate, it was over the question of the chapel that they had their first and really disastrous quarrel. Edward at that time was not well. He supposed himself to be overworked with his regimental affairs. He was managing the mess at the time, and Leonora was not well. She was beginning to fear that their union might be sterile. And then her father came over from Glassmoyle to stay with them. Those were troublesome times in Ireland, I understand. At any rate, Colonel Powys had tenants on the brain, his own tenants having shot at him with shotguns. And, in conversation with Edward's land steward, he got it into his head that Edward managed his estates with a mad generosity towards his tenants. I understand also that those years, the 90s, were very bad for farming. Wheat was fetching only a few shillings the hundred. The price of meat was so low that cattle hardly paid for raising. Whole English counties were ruined, and Edward allowed his tenants very high rebates. To do both justice, Leonora has since acknowledged that she was in the wrong at that time, and that Edward was following out a more far-seeing policy in nursing his really very good tenants over a bad period. 
it was not as if the whole of his money came from the land. A good deal of it was in rails. But old Colonel Powys had that bee in his bonnet, and, if he never directly approached Edward himself on the subject, he preached unceasingly whenever he had the opportunity to Lenore. His pet idea was that Edward ought to sack all his own tenants and import a set of farmers from Scotland. That was what they were doing in Essex. He was of the opinion that Edward was riding hot foot to ruin. That worried Leonora very much. It worried her dreadfully. She lay awake nights. She had an anxious line round her mouth. And that, again, worried Edward. I do not mean to say that Leonora actually spoke to Edward about his tenants. But he got to know that someone, probably her father, had been talking to her about the matter. He got to know it because it was the habit of his steward to look in on them every morning about breakfast time to report any little happenings. And there was a farmer called Mumford who had only paid half his rent for the last three years. One morning the land steward reported that Mumford would be unable to pay his rent all that year. Edward reflected for a moment and then he said something like, Oh well, he's an old fellow and his family have been our tenants for over two hundred years. Let him off altogether. And then Leonora, you must remember that she had reason for being very nervous and unhappy at that time, let out a sound that was very like a groan. It startled Edward, who more than suspected what was passing in her mind. It startled him into a state of anger. He said sharply, You wouldn't have me turn out people who've been earning money for us for centuries, people to whom we have responsibilities, and let in a pack of Scotch farmers... He looked at her, Lenora said, with what was practically a glance of hatred, and then precipitately left the breakfast table. Lenora knew that it probably made it all the worse that he had been betrayed into a manifestation of anger before a third party. It was the first and last time that he ever was betrayed into such a manifestation of anger. The land steward, a moderate and well-balanced man, whose family also had been with the Ashburnhams for over a century, took it upon himself to explain that he considered Edward was pursuing a perfectly proper course with his tenants. He erred perhaps a little on the side of generosity, but hard times were hard times. And everyone had to feel the pinch, landlord as well as tenants. The great thing was not to let the land go into a poor state of cultivation. Scotch farmers just skinned your fields and let them go down and down. But Edward had a very good set of tenants who did their best for him and for themselves. These arguments at the time carried very little conviction to Lenora. She was nevertheless much concerned by Edward's outburst of anger. The fact is that Lenora had been practicing economies in her department. Two of the under-housemaids had gone, and she had not replaced them. She had spent much less that year upon dress. The fare she had provided at dinners they gave had been much less bountiful and not nearly so costly as had been the case in preceding years, and Edward began to perceive a hardness and determination in his wife's character. He seemed to see a net closing round him, a net in which they would be forced to live like one of the comparatively poor country families of the neighborhood. And, in the mysterious way 
in which two people living together get to know each other's thoughts without a word spoken, he had known, even before the outbreak, that Lenora was worried about his managing of the estates. This appeared to him to be intolerable. He had, too, a great feeling of self-contempt, because he had been betrayed into speaking harshly to Lenora before the land steward. She imagined that his nerve must be deserting him, and there could have been few men more miserable than Edward was at that period. You see, he was really a very simple soul. Very simple. He imagined that no man can satisfactorily accomplish his life's work without loyal and wholehearted cooperation of the woman he lives with. And he was beginning to perceive dimly that, whereas his own traditions were entirely collective, his wife was a sheer individualist. His own theory, the feudal theory of an overlord doing his best by his dependents, and the dependents meanwhile doing their best by the overlord, this theory was entirely foreign to Leonora's nature. She came of a family of small Irish landlords, that hostile garrison in a plundered country, and she was thinking unceasingly of the children she wished to have. I don't know why they never had any children. Not that I really believe that children would have made any difference. The dissimilarity of Edward and Leonora was too profound. It will give you some idea of the extraordinary naivete of Edward Ashburnham that, at the time of his marriage, and for perhaps a couple of years after, he did not really know how children are produced. Neither did Leonora. I don't mean to say that this state of things continued, but there it was. I dare say it had a good deal of influence on their mentalities. At any rate, they never had a child. It was the will of God. It certainly presented itself to Lenora as being the will of God, as being a mysterious and awful chastisement of the Almighty. For she had discovered shortly before this period that her parents had not, ex had not exacted from Edward's family the promise that any children she should bear should be brought up as Catholics. She herself had never talked of the matter with either her father, her mother, or her husband, when at last her father had let drop some words leading her to believe that that was the fact, she tried desperately to extort the promise from Edward. She encountered an unexpected obstinacy. Edward was perfectly willing that the girls should be Catholic. The boys must be Anglican. I don't understand the bearing of these things in English society. Indeed, Englishmen seem to be a little mad in matters of politics or of religion. In Edward... It was particularly queer because he himself was perfectly ready to become a Romanist. He seemed, however, to contemplate going over to Rome himself, and yet letting his boys be educated in the religion of their immediate ancestors. This may appear illogical, but I dare say it was not so illogical as it looks. Edward, that is to say, regarded himself as having his own body and soul at his disposal, but his loyalty to the traditions of his family would not permit him to bind any future inheritors of his name or beneficiaries by the death of his ancestors. About the girls it did not much matter. They would know other homes and other circumstances. Besides, it was the usual thing. But the boys must be given the opportunity of choosing. They must have first all the Anglican teaching. He was perfectly unshakable about this. Leonora was in agony during all this time. You will have to remember that she seriously believed that children who might be born to her went in danger, if not absolutely, of damnation, 
at any rate, of receiving false doctrine. It was an agony more terrible than she could describe. She didn't indeed attempt to describe it, but I could tell from her voice when she said, almost negligently, I used to lie awake whole nights. It was no good my spiritual advisors trying to console me. I knew from her voice how terrible and how long those nights must have seemed, and how little avail were the consolations of her spiritual advisors. Her spiritual advisors seemed to have taken the matter a little more calmly. They certainly told her that she must not consider herself in any way to have sinned. Nay, they seemed even to have exhorted, to have threatened her, with a view to getting her out of what they considered to be a morbid frame of mind. She would just have to make the best of things, to influence the children when they came, not by propaganda, but by personality. And they warned her that she would be committing a sin if she continued to think that she had sinned. Nevertheless, she continued to think that she had sinned. Leonora could not be aware that the man whom she loved passionately, and whom nevertheless she was beginning to try to rule with a rod of iron, that this man was becoming more and more estranged from her. He seemed to regard her as being not only physically and mentally cold, but even as being actually wicked and mean. There were times when he would almost shudder if she spoke to him, and she could not understand how he could consider her wicked or mean. It only seemed to her a sort of madness in him that he should try to take upon his shoulders the burden of his troop, of his regiment, of his estate, and of half of his country. She could not see that in trying to curb what she regarded as megalomania, she was doing anything wicked. She was just trying to keep things together for the sake of the children who did not come. And, little by little, the whole of their intercourse became simply one of agonized discussion as to whether Edward should subscribe to this or to that institution, or should try to reclaim this or that drunkard. She simply could not see it. Into this really terrible position of strain, from which there appeared to be no issue, the Kilsite case came almost as a relief. It is part of the peculiar irony of things that Edward would certainly never have kissed that nursemaid if he had not been trying to please Leonora. Nursemaids do not travel first class, and that day Edward traveled in a third class carriage in order to prove to Leonora that he was capable of economies. I have said that the Kilsite case came almost as a relief to the strained situation that then existed between them. It gave Leonora an opportunity of backing him up in a wholehearted and absolutely loyal manner. It gave her the opportunity of behaving to him as he considered a wife should behave to her husband. You see, Edward found himself in a railway carriage with a quite pretty girl of about 19. And the quite pretty girl of about 19, with dark red hair and red cheeks and blue eyes, was quietly weeping. Edward had been sitting in his corner thinking about nothing at all. He had chanced to look at the nursemaid. Two large, pretty tears came out of her eyes and dropped into her lap. He immediately felt that he had got to do something to comfort her. That was his job in life. He was desperately unhappy himself, and it seemed to him the most natural thing in the world that they should pool their sorrows. He was quite democratic. The idea of the difference in their station never seemed to have occurred to him. 
he began to talk to her. He discovered that her young man had been seen walking out with Annie of number 54. He moved over to her side of the carriage. He told her that the report probably wasn't true, that after all, a young man might take a walk with Annie from number 54 without its denoting anything very serious, and he assured me that he felt at least quite half-fatherly when he put his arm around her waist and kissed her. The girl, however, had not forgotten the difference of her station. All her life, by her mother, by other girls, by school teachers, by the whole tradition of her class, she had been warned against gentlemen. She was being kissed by a gentleman. She screamed, tore herself away, sprang up, and pulled the communication cord. Edward came fairly well out of the affair in the public estimation, but it did him, mentally, a good deal of harm. End of Part 3, Chapter 3